When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And this episode, we are going to tackle two chapters that we felt really belong together. And frankly, chapter 24 was just incredibly short, incredibly depressing. And quite frankly, we tried to tackle this once. And uh, by the end of it, we were like, oh my God, that made for just the crappiest episode. We felt like, like it wasn't a cliffhanger. It was like reaching the bottom of a pit and then staring at the bottom of that pit and not having anywhere to go. So we decided to take chapter 24, 25. We're going to staple them together because these two, I don't even see, I get why they were pulled apart because it's like there's a, a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of 24, but I really feel like the two need to be stapled together and, and that'll show itself more as we kind of break into it. But chapter 24 starts out like, just the shittiest news broadcast from War of the Worlds with IOI invading Frobaz and this sort of third-person dialogue or perspective of just describing this growing, depressing scene of IOI coming in, trying to blockade all the homes, eventually giving up on all the homes of Frobaz and, and narrowing it down to 10 homes that equates to them mining the Jade Key. And they, they lay down all of the protective barriers and all of the stuff that they did for the first key, and they're just mining the heck out of 10 for hundreds and hundreds of their, their minions. And all the while, Parzival is just sort of forced to sit back and watch this situation unfold on the bulletin board chats, and he's just keeping his eye pinned to the scoreboard. He's locked into it like, well, shit, like, I don't know, like a, a bad newscast where... You know, somebody killed someone and they're on the run. It, he's locked in like all of America watching. Uh, watching OJ. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Watching OJ drive <laughs> down the freeway doing 55, mind you. So there's this incredibly boring, slow chase that's just de-evolving into a crap fest that you know is just going to get worse. Amongst all of this happening and settling on the fact that at some point, Sorrento picks up position number four on the scoreboard. Because as we learned last chapter, Sorrento has has jumped ahead, that he's now taken that place. He is now in the high five. Yeah. And, you know, settling back from that, he's left really only going back to the key. And and all he has left is is the hint that he's got, which is to continue your quest by taking the test. And the things that he mentions is, you know, first off, if I was in his situation, Aaron, if you were in his situation, what would you be thinking? I mean, was it obvious to you at this point? It wasn't obvious to me. I I would say it was not obvious to me only because, because I'm not, I don't have my head in the Anorak's almanac. Knowing what we know of what is in there, he should have got this a lot quicker. And you, you think this should have popped faster for him? 
Well, I just feel like all you have to do is kind of go through that, the printout, the PDF, or whatever you have of Anorax Almanac, and just kind of methodically go through it and just kind of like run through the references in your head. You're, you're, both he and Artemis should be so learned in everything that's in there that they just need that trigger, just like seeing like that title or that reference, or, and it'll just pop. All right. Yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's assume that this is a world 20 years into the future. Well, maybe they have the Googles. So I'm just going to pop it in, man. Let's just pop it in right now. Uh, take the test. And the, the other bit, the other piece of the puzzle here, the other artifact is a, is a wrapper. Is this sort of tinfoil, almost like a large bubblegum wrapper. At least that's how I imagine it. Because if it's unwrapping the key, it's got to be a fairly large sort of tinfoilish like but you know with the paper on one side it was, you know the gum wrapper the, loom, the foil gum wrapper that's along with this so i'm going to type in foil wrapper into the googles and immediately what i see is the foil wrapper of test by community.babycenter.com i'm guessing that's not going to help me um uh, there's a youtube video of you've been using aluminum foil all wrong i'm sure that's true but on the first page and would you see that those are reasonable words take the test foil wrapper can you think of anything else i should stick in here that might bring up the clue to the front the top 10 because this is the googles yeah this is the googles and the googles is usually pretty smart uh, oh, I, I like the last one on this page. What's that? <laughs> I, I typed in take test foil wrapper, and the last link that it suggests is how to get a girl pregnant. Okay, see, <laughs> here's here's the thing with Google, with the Googles. It's based partially on the kind of things going on in your life and your okay, locale. Well, then that, then... So what is that? I mean, is there something that maybe you're searching for? I'm not searching for nothing. I'm not... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of that thing like when that when that father goes to target and then they get uh they get the receipt and on the receipt is like re- receipts for uh diapers and baby food and the gist is that target is sunk deep deep in to this sort of intelligence network that tries to predict what people are going to buy based on the latent information they have about them so there's sort of this you know if you get the little discount card then you've given them your name and your address and probably an email address for them to send you specials. But what they've really done is they've linked into a much larger network of social information. And all of that information sort of bubbles and churns. And when you're trying to extract information that's predictive, uh, it's amazing how uncanny accurate that information can come out. And in fact, the daughter that had bought this, what what they found out was that she was pregnant and the father was pissed off at Target for hinting at this fact, for knowing it before anyone else or before, but not before her, obviously, but before she had a chance to tell him. Now, now bear with me because I haven't looked that up online in quite some time. So it's totally off the top of my head, but that's generally how the story went. And uh, that's pretty crazy. Fucking crazy. Yeah. Because th- those, uh, you know, those coupons that I usually get whenever I go to like the supermarket or, or CVS or something, right? They're n- they're never on target for me. Well, well, Target's more on target than CVS, maybe. I don't know, but that was a good one. I, uh, well, uh, I'll have to cut that. But <laughs> <laughs> I, but that's the just that's the scary part, though. So 
it's interesting that you got a different set of results. Like I got stop doing this with aluminum foil, best aluminum foil. And then, and here's the weird part, right? It starts going into pregnancy tests. Yeah. I'm looking at one of the uh, snippets from one of the links. It's like this, the pregnancy tests come out of a foil wrapper or something, yeah. which makes sense because of the way they work. I guess we kind of stumbled upon a combination of words that often alludes to pregnancy tests. Yeah. And I got to imagine that in 20 years, if the Googles is still around, that there's probably more information out there muddying the waters. So I suppose even, even if he would... has Anorax Almanac, I don't know how easy it would be to just do a search amongst this gargantuan text of, of information. You know what I mean? I don't think he's got to necessarily like, like do like a, a word search in a in the almanac, but it's kind of like you just kind of flip through. You see, okay, he's talking about Ghostbusters. And then, like, you run through your head and, like, well, they don't really have a test in there, really. So, okay, move on to the next one. You go to Back to the Future. They had all the time in the world. They had, like, what, six months uh, between the, the first gate and the Jade Key. Right, right. You know, they had all this time with the clue, and they never got anywhere for six months. Well, and it just seems like they could have got there so much quicker. They could have just like lick, I, turn a page, lick, turn a page. Well, if you got nothing else to do, you're, you're full-time hunting at this point. Mm -hmm. He's admitted this. He doesn't have school anymore. This is all he does, except for being distracted by some girl. Right? Yeah. You, so you just methodically go through the almanac. You sound like Parzival's mom. Parzival, if you're going to be without a job and you just you don't have a girlfriend and you're going to spend all day in the house, you might as well research. You might as well read a book. You might as well read a book. Do your homework, Parzival. Your girlfriend's turned you down. Don't be a loser. Read a book, Parzival. No, I I get you, but you got to keep in mind is that the, the book itself doesn't have all the answers. The book just leads you to all the shit that, that Halliday was interested in. So the book just introduces a shit ton of movies and music and literature. I know, uh, but I, I feel like he just needs a trigger. He just needs something that just like suddenly like all the synapses in his, the right synapses in his, in his head go off. And he, he, it clicks. That's what I'm waiting for. And it just... I get you. Ah. Uh, yeah, I know. It's disappointing. It's frustrating. It's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for Parzival. And he even goes through and, and says, you know, of all the references, and even dipping into the references, is it the Pepsi Challenge? Is it the Kobayashi Maru? And, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Because when you're talking about references, like, that's a test. Like, that would be a good reference for a test. You know? Yeah. That's... that's uh, I don't know how obvious that is to everyone, but be it that Star Trek is pretty solid lore and that that is a very popular test amongst that lore, I could totally see that being the direction he would go in trigger-wise. But tell me about tell me about the Kobayashi Maru. What do you know of that? It's the no-win exercise. I think it was first portrayed in Wrath of Khan, but I don't I can't remember if it was referred to otherwise. But the only person to beat it was uh, James T. Kirk. And he did it by cheating, sort of. He did it by hacking. I'll call it hacking. I don't know necessarily it was cheating, but it was hacking. Okay, look, if you hack a game and you beat a game that you shouldn't beat, you've both cheated and you hacked. <laughs> there's, there's okay, fine. No, you no, no fucking hairs. Hair. Well, that's, I mean, that's what it is. What's the point in hacking a game if you can't win with the hack? Then you're just a loser. <laughs> you can't even win with a leg up, right? I think this is from the Wikipedia page on it. Primary goal of the exercise is to rescue the civilian vessel, the Kobayashi Maru, in a simulated battle with the Klingons. Uh, it's a disabled ship located in the Klingon neutral zone, 
and the Starfleet ship entering the zone would cause an interstellar incident. Ooh. I like how they call it an incident. Like you'd breeze over that in the news. And today in interstellar news, there was an incident. Yeah, this multi-trillion dollar vessel had had a snafu. So anyway, so the, the approaching cadet crew must decide whether to attempt the rescue of the Kobayashi Maru, endangering their own ship and their lives, or leave the Kobayashi Maru to certain destruction. If the cadet chooses to attempt rescue, the simulation is designed to guarantee the cadet ship is destroyed with the loss of all crew members. And I think also vice versa, where no matter which way they go, they get it goes bad. Wow! So it, it's a no-win situation. You're screwed. It's, it's basically You're... it's how do you how do you handle how do you handle a a situation under extreme duress with no way out? Yeah. Now I I like that he stuck this in here, and the reason why is because the idea of of an unwin nearly unwinnable game, we'll just say nearly nearly unwinnable game where the winner is the cheater, uh, very much reminds me of the parallel to to the hunt for the egg because it's been years and years. People People have been trying to play this game. It has been unbeatable thus far, although people have found they have found the keys and they have found the gates. Uh, but but still, that there is a degree of cheating that is going on that is allowing well, this to happen. Well, and Parzival even you know suggests like how did they get how did they get ahead of Artemis and the rest of them? Did they find some new innovative way of cheating? So it's interesting that he mentions the Kobayashi Maru, but also saying, did they cheat to get to to uh, to get beyond us? And it's like, how how the hell did that happen? Like, how could we go months and years, and all of a sudden it only takes hours? Especially since other people have had the Jade Key for longer. How did they make it through uh, the next gate or figure out the next gate to get the Crystal Key? And and I think that's where they were talking about they had to have cheated in order to have jumped ahead like that. Because after they got the Crystal Key, that's when Sorrento's score jumps. Huge, big time. Bigly. Yeah. But we're not quite Bigly. there yet. We're not quite quite there yet. We will get there. Uh, so we've got the Kobayashi Maru, which is a really interesting sort of parallel, this impossible test that is won only by cheating, this insinuation of cheating. Actually, it's not an insinuation. They are cheating. You're not supposed to have an individual swap out. You know, if your character, if your avatar dies, you go to the beginning. That isn't the case. Evidently, they've got a, a ton of trained up avatars and they stick their best people in the best avatars they can swap out headsets anytime they want that's cheating can't be proven but it's cheating nonetheless they have found a way to get around the rules uh so there there is this jump ahead due to cheating and then he mentions the pepsi challenge which i mean fucking out of left field truly yeah how are you going to take the pepsi challenge in the oasis well all right so let's say let's say it's the pepsi challenge because all right, so here's the thought. Like, the Pepsi challenge involved having a wrapper around the cans before, ooh. ooh, before, and then you would drink it, and then if you guessed, you know, depending on how you guessed, they would take the wrapper off, and then you would see what you had chosen. And I could definitely see this sort of cross between um, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, you know, and you you go in and you've got this thing you got to get past, and you've got the Pepsi challenge in the midst of that tomb with the Holy Grail. <laughs> And your your job is to not pick poorly. So the, so you need your your olfactric uh, smell tower to smell whether it's Pepsi or Coke. No, my thinking is that is that is that you have a bunch of chalices spread out across the room, and you maybe you've got two chalices in front of you, and you put the wrapper around the one you want to choose, and then you drink that and guess what it is, and then you pull the wrapper off, and it tells you whether you're right, and then 
you know, this centuries old knight who says, you chose wisely, and then you're allowed mm. to leave or some shit. That would have been an awesome simulation. <laughs> oh my god, the whole, ah, uh, the whole Last Crusade thing. Ah, uh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> and, and, the, and the fact that this is like a bunch of tests between that and the fucking Pepsi challenge, at, 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 you know, with the, with the knight. So you could totally wrap those yeah. two things together. Yeah. And, and you could yeah, you, have to pick that grail, then you dip it into a vat of Pepsi to drink. <laughs> this is Coke. You chose poorly. Poorly. <laughs> and then your character dies. So I you know, if we had to go to the furthest lengths for how he could have pulled like the Pepsi challenge out of his ass. Uh that's my submission for anyone who wants to do some insertion fanfic for <laughs> for an alternative key. Or an alternative gate. I totally, like, just, it just didn't, like, pop in my head. They're like, yeah, indeed, like, the cans were wrapped. Like, I just, I hadn't made that connection. Like, I knew, like, that they were, but, like, I just said, like, oh, yeah, there's a wrapper from the key. And the Pepsi Challenge, the the, the different cans were wrapped, so you didn't know which one it was. Like, I, that, that, that could work. Good, yeah, good job. Yeah. Woohoo! Two points. So he he falls asleep, staring at the wrapper, trying to figure out why the fuck that plays into anything. And like a klaxon alarm going off, the scoreboard has changed. It's it's. I have to imagine it's that wave of panic, that that level of sweat that hits you. Uh, this reminds me of like when I stubbed my toe, and it wasn't just a stub. I heard a crack and a numbingness, and I looked down, and I had one toe bent over 90 degrees laying over the other toe and oh, this God. wave of panic just showered down from the top of my head through my body uh it's just worth the worst freaking feeling i've ever had so i've got to imagine it's it may be a little bit like this so do you think that his panic would have subsided a little bit if it was Artemis who had found it. I think so. I think I think deep down inside, you know, you have the people that you're rooting for. If it's not you, you're okay with it being H. You're okay with it being Artemis. But if it's not you and it's not any of the other high high, high four now. Oh. Oh, too is it too soon? <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh if it's not if it's not the high four. You know, that's the worst case scenario. You know, you'd be happy if it was one of the others. I'd imagine it's like one of your friends. It would be like one of your friends getting it. You know, at the very least, there's competition, but you feel like you're still in the running. Well, I mean, he goes into this whole thing about he could see that the contest wasn't going to end the way he had hoped that some noble, worthy Gunter. So, yeah, I think that he probably would have been relieved if it had at least been H or Artemis. Uh, and that, you know, he probably just panicked that it, that it wasn't them. And as it turns out, it, it wasn't either of them. And it was the Sixers and life was clearly not worth living at that point. Well, and that's the, and that's the gist here, because at, at this point, uh, he tries calling H and no reply. And he's figuring Mage must still be pissed off at him. So strike one tries contacting Artemis, even though he's thinking Artemis is probably freaking out in her own right. He's like, I probably shouldn't call her. But of course, like a dumbass, he goes ahead and tries. And of course. no response. And even talking to Max, like nothing is sadder than when you end up talking to your AI and you realize that your AI starts repeating itself. And you're like, oh, it's a reminder that this isn't, isn't a real thing, that this is, you know, fake within fake. It's like a, a multi-levels of fake, right? Yeah. And, and that everybody starts evaporating off of the scoreboard completely. All of the high five are eventually replaced with 
IOIs and fucking sixes, you know, just a whole lineup of numbers. And I'll spare you the lineup of numbers, but it's that sort of world crumbling and that final moment when he sees that they've passed through the second gate and that they've obtained the crystal key. And that's it almost feels like the throw in the towel moment. Like this is this is the Empire Strikes Back of this book. This is fucking Luke Skywalker dangling on an antenna after his father cut off his arm and he just realized that his father is the evil ruler of the universe and you've got nowhere else to go. You've got nowhere else to go. You're just fucking hanging with an arm cut off. Like this is this is the worst situation to be in. If this was the never ending story, we would be waist deep in the swamp of sadness. Artex. Again, too soon. And that's where we are. Like that's that is that is this place that he's finally come to and he's thinking he's gotta be again like Luke Skywalker hanging on there like, well, there's gotta be there's nothing left. Where am I going to go? You know, it's that moment before reaching out to the force where he's got to be thinking to himself, well, I'm going to fall into the clouds and I'm going to die afterwards. So I wonder if I should hum that song from the cantina I heard. Mm. What a way to go. <laughs> what a way to go. And, and, and Parsifal's thinking the same thing. So, so in light of Parsifal's more gruesome tones, I'll pose this question, which is, you have no choice but to plunge to your death for reasons we shall not elaborate. Uh, what song are you going to be humming on the way down? Well, it, this happens to be uh, rather timely, given the passing of Margot <sighs> Kidder. Oh, no. But I'm going with the, the John Williams uh, score to Superman the movie. Dun, 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 dun. You're going to do that one, the one where he, like, flies. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to get my uh, discarded haptic suit, and I'm going to wear it as a fucking cape. <laughs> because or why the fuck not? You know what? I guess if you could, I, I, I guess if I didn't have a choice, given the situation, like, I don't even think given the situation, like, I'm a fairly... <clears throat> I'm a fairly upbeat and happy guy. Uh, if I'm if I'm Skywalker and and I'm hanging on to this antenna and the antenna breaks, let's say, or I've hung on as long as I can, what am I going to hum going down? And I'd have to say I'm not very creative. <laughs> uh, well, you got to have something. I I think I might hum Rio by Duran Duran. All right, some some uh, Durani action going on here. Well, okay, so the gist is, is like every other song in my mind, while maybe a favorite would still feel kind of shallow, right? Okay. Uh, but that that song, while not my favorite, while not even in my top 100, maybe not even my top 1,000, still holds a very special place to someone I love. And if I was to, to hum that going down, maybe it would just kind of remind me or bring me closer to that person in the moment. Sure. I guess I could go that route. I was trying to, you know, go out with the, you know. Go out with a, a bang. flare. Yeah, a little. Go out with a flare. Right. Something that people would write about. <laughs> and they heard the John Williams score to Superman the movie. It was humming. It was the oddest he thing. He was humming Superman going down. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't fly. If it was a situation where it was like the middle of New York, it was a really crowded street. I might not hum something. I might just say two dollars and thirty six cents. 
<laughs> just before I hit, <laughs> just before I hit, they'd be like, "Did he say two dollars and thirty six cents?" Did he? I, what I the just fuck feel is he like talking that about? If I was actually successfully whistling this thing while on my way down, I would probably end up laughing instead <laughs> because it just seems so funny to me. And that's actually not a bad way to go. All right, if you got your haptic suit on, you could technically, if you're not wired, I suppose, uh, you could put something in the visor that made it feel like you were floating. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't have or, that field of view coming at you. Or, 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 or actually flying. Sure. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll casually divert from this uh, morbid conversation. As he's contemplating this sort of end game situation, both, both literally and figuratively, that is when he receives a recorded message from Shoto stating that Daito had left him something in his will. And that's a very that's very strange. That's very ominous. And of course, at it's, the end of this yeah. in, at the end of this chapter, it it goes into a little bit that a meeting needs to happen. This this is the Deus Ex Machina, really, of the book. If there's ever a moment where, if you will, the hand of God reaches down to bring a person out of a situation that is dire and and deadly. This is it, you know, because you got to think to yourself, if Shoto hadn't sent a recorded message, if there wasn't something left in his will, that that this chapter probably wouldn't end very well. Perhaps, but like this whole, his whole scheme about, you know, jumping off the building and whistling a happy tune, it all depends upon the Sixers winning the contest. So that he's not going to get there yet. Yeah. But he's he's getting to the bottom of the fucking barrel because he's exploring just like the worst case scenario of his life. He's not just exploring it. He's planning it. Yeah, it's uh, in his it's mind, morbid. In his mind, it feels like he's given up, like he's just waiting for the universe to end. And that's when he'll take the next step. But did he, he in this situation, he's not planning on the key. He's not reading into the clue anymore. He's not blowing his nose into the wrapper. You know, he's he's making a plan. Like, this is the next step for him. He's waiting for the bottom to drop out of this contest. Yeah, which which seems so contrary to the way he was in, you know, just a chapter or two before where suddenly he wants to win the contest more than ever. And, you know, he, you know, dusts off his kind of, you know, his teenage boy hormone crap and says, find that fucking egg. Now he's kind of like, eh. I've get, he's given it's up. Kind of, yeah, it's like in no time at all. And it's like, you don't know that it's going to ha- just kind of fall out from under you that quickly. There, you know. But the, I mean, the crystal it, key was gotten within hours, within hours. He, yeah. He's thinking they have found a new way to cheat. And, and that's shortened the time frame for them to figure out what to do next. Yeah, but he can't think that the, you know, getting... Yeah, uh, getting through the third gate is gonna be simple. It just reminds me of the movie Better Off Dead, where he, where he goes into the garage and he has like a tie wrap, you know, uh, wrapped around his forehead, and he has like a, a a blanket thrown over him, and he goes into the garage to get the gasoline. It's just constantly coming up with these reasons to kill himself because his girlfriend died. Have you seen Better Off Dead? No. Oh my god. I know. I haven't seen shit. It's terrible. <laughs> I haven't seen shit. It's terrible. Move the fuck on. I, I'm, okay, I, I'm too busy rewatching stuff. Because... Don't rewatch. Rewatch Better Off Dead. Better Off Dead's good. Better Off Dead's. A... I can't rewatch well, it. I have to watch it. Well, then, then rewatch it for the first time. Okay, but but you know where it's streaming? That'll help me out. Anywhere, anywhere. In fact, it may not be streaming anymore because it is that fucking old. Oh, that's a bunch of bullshit. It's got John Cusick in it. 
It's got. I know who's in it. Right. I just haven't seen it. It's got Booger from the Nerds. Uh, nice. It's got. It's got a ton of. It's got a ton of peeps in it. Uh, it's just anyhow. All right. So the Better Off Dead reference is lost. All right. I might have to cut that one out. Okay. So we move out of chapter twenty-four. We have. We've just sort of the hand of God has reached down and and touched Parcival with the question mark of who. Someone left me something and has focused his attention away for planning to die very, very soon to what the fuck is going on. And it is chapter 25 where we roll into Shoto arriving an hour or so after this conversation and him granting ship clearance for him to enter Falco's airspace. Falco being the the little asteroid that he has his base on, his little moon base. Uh, which uh, to me seems like a big deal. First off, it expresses a gargantuan amount of trust, mm-hmm. you know, because you got to keep in mind, like, I guess he really doesn't have anything to lose here. Certainly, that's what he thinks. Well, yeah, certainly uh, to have this competitor come into his base, because before it was it was said that, you know, no one could kill him or attack him in this place unless he invited them in. So it's kind of like inviting vampires in. I guess they can't fuck with you if you're in your house unless you invite them in. Lost Boys. So Shoto's vessel is a large interplanetary trawler named the Kurosawa, modeled after a ship called the Bebop. Now, I am not familiar with this at all, so you're going to have to enlighten me here. Okay, so Kurosawa is from the Japanese film director Akira Kurosawa. Okay. Uh, and Now, did he do the movie Akira, or is that totally unrelated? Uh, probably unrelated. Oh, okay. I don't know. Okay. He's regarded as one of the most important and most influential filmmakers in this uh, history of cinema. Like he's kind of a big deal. I think he did a bunch of samurai movies. I see here that he directed 30 films over the course of his 57-year career. And what else can I say about him? I'm going to act like I know what I'm talking about, like I'm experienced in the knowledge of all that is Kurosawa, but I really just kind of copy and pasted from uh, Wikipedia. I did find some interesting things about the major themes that that he employed in his films. Mm-hmm. The master-disciple relationship, usually between an older mentor and one or more novices, which often involves spiritual as well as technical mastery and self-mastery, which I thought was interesting. Okay. Another theme is the heroic champion, the exceptional individual who emerges from the mass of people to produce something or write some injustice. Okay. So these are themes through his films. Yeah. Which is interesting because these are these are parallel themes for it seems the relationship that Shoto and Daito have this master student almost relationship. And they they've referred to it in the book as sort of a sibling relationship. But there's clearly a top and bottom here. Yeah, exactly. There's clearly a, a dom and sub relationship going on here. And I don't mean like in a sexual way. Even though that could it, no. I don't even no. Scratch that. <laughs> I don't mean it like that, but that there's definitely a, a dominant and, and subversive relationship here. Almost big brother, little brother, or like you said, as far as the sort of theme for this director in his movies, a master and a student, you know, a Jedi yeah. and his Padawan. Exactly. And then, of course, the heroic champion emerging from the mass of people. That's kind of like the hunt. Yeah. There are two other themes listed here. The the next one being, not that this is applicable, so you might cut this out, 
the depiction of extremes of weather as both dramatic devices and symbols of human passion. Mm-hmm. And the last one is the recurrence of cycles of inexorable savage violence within history. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to work that in. Yeah, no, just cut that one out. All right. So that's the name of the ship Bebop from the classic anime series Cowboy Bebop. So I tried watching a few clips of Cowboy Bebop mm-hmm. before we started recording, and it's a little weird. I've had friends that that loved this cartoon, this anime. It looks like it could be really cool, but when you watch it in like minute and a half clips with no context whatsoever, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> there was a lot of gratuitous sex, boob shots. Oh wow! For once, I was right. Okay, like there's this one clip where the, I guess it's the main female character is opens up the fridge and sees that there's no food in there. And she's, of course, leaning over and you are looking at cartoon cleavage. Okay. That's a thing. So that's a thing. Yeah. That's the name of the ship. Well, hold on a minute now. So we got cartoon cleavage. Did they accentuate? Were there any other exaggerated accentuations of, of the masculine form? <laughs> Who would watch that? Uh, I don't know. I was just curious as to whether or not there was just, you know, car- cartoons kind of overexemplify certain characteristics be it muscles or feet or something. The clips that I saw didn't really focus on the male characters that much. Oh, well, that's selective. Well, I just typed in Cowboy Bebop. Uh, everything came up with like this character. I think her name is Faye. Uh-huh. Is, is it an old character? No, she's like this young Really girl. young. Young girl. Right. Go on. Looks like she's depicted as like a 20-something. Right. Yeah. That's a good breeding age, right? Oh, you know what? <laughs> Who asked you? <laughs> Google. <laughs> it's not a word it's, with you, dude. Google. It's not my fault. It's just how Google interprets you as a meta thing. It's, yeah, it's Google's I'm meta gonna... interpretation of your searches, your desires, and your needs. I'm gonna throw it off by searching for some weird random shit now. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is, and this is an extreme side note. There is a an application online that will search for obscure shit in order to obfuscate your interests. But then how am I going to get to see all the ads of the stuff I want? Oh, you want to see those things? <laughs> no, I really don't. Yeah, well, now you're going to start seeing stuff that has to do with, you know, babies and tinfoil and taking pregnancy tests. Cause, no, cause I really you, don't need that. Because you searched for it. Because you searched for it. Hey, I was searching what you searched for. I know. I'm going to have the same problem, too. Although mine didn't end with how to get young ladies pregnant. Yeah, but they were all sort of on that theme. Only two of them for me, but moving on. Yeah, move on because <laughs> we don't need to dwell on that any longer. Oh, wow. What's weird is that I think I, I just looked at it again. Uh-huh. Did change? All the, like, half the links are different now. Dude, Google is listening to you. The, the, the second one is about <laughs> barbecuing brisket. <laughs> is that the second link? That's the second link. Yeah. That's, see, that's more up my alley. Yeah, oh, sh- Ah, knocking up young ladies while eating barbecue i hear you it's totally a george costanza thing okay then (laughs) so shoto comes out of his gargantuan ship and he's dressed in black morning robes and i don't mean morning is in like sunrise i mean morning is in like crying yeah and his face bears the same inconsolable expression that he'd seen when they'd spoken on their phone uh and they they give each other sort of a a traditional greeting of a sort with bowing. It's sort of like a formality, you know, where they where they greet each other proper and then they they give each other skin. Is that right? Did I get this right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah. He says something like he extended his hand out and it was a gesture that 
showed him a notice from when they quested to get the beta capsule. And he says he slipped him some skin. And uh, I just cringe every time I hear that phrase. It's just like. It's great. Have, have you ever slipped somebody some skin and ended like with a snap and maybe a finger point? Oh, God. Come on. No? You've never done that? But like just the phrase just like. Uh, Does it sound perverse? It just sounds stupid. Sounds, I don't know. It sounds I, like a bad pickup line at a bar. Hey, baby. Would you like me to slip I, you some I, skin? I tried to find some type <laughs> of uh, origin for this phrase. Uh-huh. And I found this music video from the Electric Company from like the 70s. Oh, I remember the Electric Company. That was on par with uh, Sesame Street. Yeah. All these kids walk into this room and they say hi. And someone says, that's how you greet your friends with hello? And it's like, how are you supposed to? And it's like, you slip them from skin. Slip some skin. And then they go into this song, and it's just like, ugh. Wow. I, you, you, didn't, you, did not, you don't dig the slipping some skin thing, huh? No, the phrase just, I don't like it. Every time I listen to Will Wheaton tell me that phrase. It, says, it sounds creepy. It Does it me. sound like molester or creepy? Well, it just... Hello, children. The only, the only reason why I can think of that he would keep it in there is that it's like this reference to something. It is. It's, it's, it was an 80s thing. So this was a common 80s That's, term. Yes, that was not only a common 80s term, it was a common 80s thing to do. So, like, I wouldn't okay. go up to somebody and say, hey, well, actually, I have. I've said, hey, slip me some skin. Like, I was, like, middle school for me, right? But you could, like... I was born in 1980, so I wasn't really, like, doing that kind of stuff when I was uh, old enough in the 80s. Like, I didn't... I wasn't into that kind of thing. I didn't hear about things. I was sheltered. That shit had come and gone by... Easily by the late 80s. Like, slipping you some skin was kind of like a, a sort of, I don't know, it seemed sort of hand-in-hand hand with with uh, breakdancing, you know? Like, it was just a, it was a cool thing to do. Then I would have missed that entirely. Yeah, you missed a good age. Breakdancing was fantastic. Oh, so I hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. So, they slip each other some skin. <laughs> <sighs> slip me some skin, big boy. Now you sound like Pennywise. <laughs> uh, and and he, he comments that his avatar seems to be a few inches a few inches taller than he remembers. What what did you? I, I thought this was an odd thing to mention. What did what did you take on this? Pretty much every time I read it, I have the exact same kind of thought: is that he he's no longer under the shadow of Dido anymore. Uh, that maybe Dido was kind of this like overpowering kind of like bully big brother to to Shoto. Oh, and hold on though, Dido was the little one in this in the book. No. Yeah. Nope. Yep. Shoto was always the little brother. Nope. Shoto was the big one. Nope. You sure? Yes. You sure? You sure? Uh huh. Because I'm pretty sure Dido is also the long sword and Shoto is the short short sword. Well, all right. Let's look it up because. Uh, my understanding was first off that the movie switched the names. Daito no. being the older one, Shoto being the small one. Um, or Sho, really, in the movie. But that in the book, Shoto was the older one, and Daito was the younger one who got pulled out and, and thrown out. Give me a second here. This is going to be a trip if I have this backwards, because it's like it would jerk my, my, my whole reality of this part of the book around. Dead air was brought to you by. Well, I cut out the dead air. <laughs> it's a lot easier when no one's talking. <laughs> oh, I guess so. Shoto had suggested to Daito that perhaps it was time for them to meet in person. And Daito was the one that was thrown out, correct? Daito was the one that, like, ripped a shit. I'm sorry. That what? 
No, which one got killed? Daito gets killed. It, use the mnemonic device, Daito, dead. Oh, yeah. That's how I keep remembering. That's so weird. You you thought it was reversed. I totally fucking thought it was reversed. I totally did. Um, And I don't know why. It's the lack of uh, full throttle, isn't it? For this evening, it most certainly is. Yeah. Shoto is a short sword, and Daito is the long sword. Huh. Yeah, I totally fucking had it backwards. All this time, I thought it was like Kid Brother got thrown out a window. Like, I'm, I'm fucking expecting the child to be tossed out. Like, in my mind, the kid, the child gets killed. And that, to me, made, like, this whole fucking chapter tragic. Way more tragic. I don't know why age would make a difference here. Because, you know, here's this kid that lost his older brother, I suppose, is the, the flip on this. Here's the part of when they first are introduced in the book. Daito and Shota logged in a moment later, appearing simultaneously at the top of the basement staircase. Daito was the taller of the two and appeared to be in his late teens. Shota was a foot shorter and looked much younger, maybe about 13. Both avatars look Japanese. Both were striking resemblance to one another, like samurais of the same man, five years apart, blah, blah, blah. Greetings, the taller samurai said. I'm Daito, and this is my little brother, Shoto. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The movie had it right. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I went to the movie thinking they switched the peep, they switched the characters. That that is how that is how confused I was with this. Wow, you should have read the book a little more. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that that's why I had this whole thought that yeah, you know, like when your big brother goes off to college and suddenly you can be the big shit in the house, you know? Or maybe just in in comparison to someone larger uh yeah maybe so uh, i wonder i wonder if maybe it's a situation where because three inches is kind of that's a that's a big deal but when you've got these two characters and you're playing a part and all of a sudden you know that person who is the other half of you is gone um you no longer have to play that role. So it, may, it kind of seems like, because again, this, these are avatars. And uh, I could imagine, and again, I got to correct my fucking self, Daito kind of having this very domineering relationship with Shoto and trying to sort of imprint this, this older brother, younger brother team. So basically, I don't want to say being trapped, but being cast into this avatar role between these two characters that now that he's alone, maybe he took some liberties and kind of grew up a little bit. Maybe this is the reflection of him moving from being this being a competition and him trying to win it for fun with, with Daito to now it's him alone and, and he's got a man up maybe is the best way to put it, or he's reflecting how he feels like maybe internally this trauma has aged him a bit and you know his avatar is reflecting that yeah so the only thing that kind of bothers me about that whole thing is that he's so distraught he's in mourning he's going to incipio and getting black mourning robes so that he can do that whole thing wait wait wait, wait. you think he went shopping for black mourning robes i i don't know <laughs> he's just wondering like <laughs> he's wandering marshals online exactly yeah do you have something. something dark yeah <laughs> amongst all that He's mourning, he's crying, he's very upset. And somehow between all the tears, he goes into his avatar's settings and says, make three inches taller. Uh, yeah, I could kind of see that, I suppose. I mean, I, I mean, he is wearing black mourning robe, so he's already made a, a costume change. And let's maybe, face the it, black, maybe the black mourning robe just makes him look taller. Sure, the color black makes people look thinner, too. Yeah, it's slimming. It's slimming. Oh, God. All right. So they both 
greet each other. Parsifal leads him into his stronghold and into a sitting room that is rarely used. And understandably, because it's not like he has a ton of guests that trust anyhow. And this is the part that threw me off, because when I saw this, I thought this was so unusual for the circumstance. Or maybe not. Maybe this is the best place to break bad news. But it was the living room set of Family Ties. Yeah, which is the second time the that show has been referenced in the book. When was the first time? The first time was way in the beginning when... I think it was actually like chapter one where he decided to watch a, some episodes of Family Ties because and helped him think about what it would be like to just live in that simple world again where all of his problems could be solved in like a 30-minute episode or one hour if it was something really serious. Oh, yeah, that was a thing. So, okay, then I, I, uh, my initial thought was, why the fuck Family Ties? Why the Family Ties living room set? But for him, this is comfort food for the soul. Yeah, this is an homage. This is... Like, yeah, it's a comforting place for him. Like, why? It's someplace you'd want to go sit with your family and be reminded of happy times. Like, why? Like, I I buy that. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Plus, uh, when was one of the. Who was in Family Ties? Like, who are the actors in Family Ties? So, uh, Michael J. Fox is the. the big name. Gotcha. So Michael J. Fox was also yeah. in Back to the Future, which, you know, that's that's where our DeLorean comes from. And it's mm-hmm. and it seems that when we talk about movies, particularly with Parzival, that he digs, there's a streak of of participation of favorite actors, such as with oh, I don't know. Um honestly I don't know. Uh, uh, scratch it. What's the one with the beast in it? Help me here. What was the other one that Michael J. Fox was in? That oh, Teen Wolf. No, you said Beast. Teen Wolf. No, no, no. The one where where. Wait, wait, wait. Michael J. Fox. You know, fuck it. We're. I'm thinking something completely different. Anyhow, yes. So, uh, Family Ties living room. I I totally did not get it first, but in light to the fact that there's this reference earlier in the book to this being kind of a comfort food for his soul as far as uh, enjoying watching. And I, and I kind of get that. Like when I think of comfort food, you know, comfort foods that are tel- television oriented, uh, I think of like Transformers. It, mostly because the Optimus Prime, his voice just had this deep, fatherly, crackly sort of voice. Just this rich, rich baritone voice that was just commanding and just very fatherly. And in, in fact, a lot of people had problems with Optimus Prime being killed in the movie, the cartoon, the first movie, the good movie. Because it was like killing off this father that had raised a whole generation of latchkey kids who had come home. Both of their parents were working, and they'd they'd come home and watch Transformers on television, and they would have Optimus Prime as sort of this quasi-cartoon father figure talking to them. So to me, that's kind of like this. That's that's kind of like that. That's 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 a bit like this living room, I think, as far as um, comfort food for the soul. What is your what is your your comfort food in regards to television stuff? Ah. Uh... My comfort food. It could be movies too, man. If there's like a movie that you watch, like whenever you get sick and you're in bed, you just, you whip out this movie. And just for some reason, that just makes time go by faster. I would say that if I was going to put on anything as like a, for comfort purposes, it would be whose line is it anyway? Oh, that's good. That's good. That, that That's Drew Carey before he started promoting the spaying and neutering of pets on game shows. Yeah. But like even like the original <laughs> British series is just it's fucking uh, gold. Yeah, it is. It is so funny. I could watch that for hours. 
hours. Oh, it's it's fucking great. So so then, if you had to create if you had to create a sitting room, then would it be that stage, or would you have to dig to something else? If I was going to create a sitting room for my stronghold, I would probably have the two sets from Seinfeld: the Jerry's apartment and Monk's cafe. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm a that's big Seinfeld cool. fan, so that would be perfect because that's what they do: they sit and they talk. Right. Perfect. Yeah, I dig that. I think if I if I had a sitting room. It would be the round table. Well, you know, the whole castle bit, though. Like, you'd walk into this this huge stone chamber with freaking torches hanging on pillars, uh, and you would have the nice. round table. Like, I could entertain a number of guests, and I could have AI servants coming out and delivering food from within the round table. And you would have these big-ass, awesome, comfortable wood chairs. Like, it would be a very—the warmth of wood— inside the sort of cold barrenness of this large temple-esque chamber that's not a very warm sitting room is it no not really i'm like that doesn't sound very it doesn't have all the uh the modern comforts that we we've come to know uh, uh it sounds cool but it, it just doesn't make me want to like sit down and like you know schmooze it make you schmooze okay i, I see. it would make me want to sit down for a banquet and like have dead animals carted out on trays Drinking horns filled with wine and that kind of shit. Okay, well, all right, I have another idea in mind. And okay, it, but it's it's a movie that's it's not eighties. Okay. I'm not even sure it's it might be nineties, but it was uh something flying daggers or something. Uh, jeez, it was really it was it was subtitled. This might be lost on me then. It's like flying assholes cutting dragons or flying daggers. What? Fuck something. Um, shit. Hold Next. on. Next. No, 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 <laughs> no. Hold on a minute. If you don't know the title, you can't use it. I could totally fucking use it because I don't know the title to hardly anything. I don't know that many uh, subtitled films that have the word asshole in the title. No, the word asshole wasn't in the title, but it was really, it was a space filler. You're supposed to guess. Movie, movie about, thank God for Google, uh, Chinese assassination and three assassins. That's um, that's gonna get me pretty fucking close. No, the no. assassins. No, Jesus, there's a lot for the assassins. It's not really what I was going. Maybe it's because I used the word assassin twice. Flying, let's try flying. Flying. The word flying is in it. Flying. Fucking no. Wait, hero. Wow. This is gonna be kind of embarrassing if that's the name of the movie. I was gonna say that's the first thing that came up on my end too. Surprisingly, not something about pregnancy. <laughs> what about a high road to China? No. Uh, okay, the movie's called Hero. <laughs> so there's this. Uh, so the idea behind the movie Hero is that you have these assassins that are plotting to kill the emperor, and the goal is that it, the main assassin. And this is going to be a spoiler, but you know what? It's a 2002 film. So the idea here is that this assassin has to make it look like he has killed three other assassins that had a huge bounty on their head for being an enemy of the state. And that for each one of the assassins that were killed, he can come within so many feet of the emperor. And it's him telling the story of how he killed these assassins. But in reality, he didn't. So it was a really great movie, aside from the fact that I ended up doing a lot of fucking reading. But the temple that he was in, the emperor was in, he had this huge setup of like a thousand candles. And the candles would flicker one direction or the other, depending on whether or not somebody was telling the truth. 
uh, was just it was just just beautiful with lots of drapes, but it also looked like crazy comfortable. Like you could go in there and and sit size style on this rug or set of pillows and have a very intimate and private and almost spiritual communication with someone with these candles in this huge hall with these large sort of flowing tapestries. So it's very open and yet still very private. And I and I really loved that scene or that particular location. I thought that, I, I don't know, I like, I like large spaces with small private settings. So you feel like you're in something bigger, you know, or maybe it feels more like you're outside. I, I don't know. I digress. But maybe if I had a sitting room, it would be something like that. Uh, that sounds kind of cool. I'm trying to find a still from the movie of this particular thing, and I'm not easily finding it, but uh, I can visualize. Um, if you take a look at Hero Emperor, uh-huh. now, now, granted, the Emperor is like sitting behind a bunch of fucking candles, and our main character gets close and is further down. But I see it as kind of a situation where you could, you know, come up and sit or hang out or whatever. Uh, this kind of like terracing wall with the little lights on it, the candles. Yeah. But look, the candles of truth, I guess is what they are. But yeah, it, it, you know, it's hard to see the scene here, but it struck me as very big and beautiful. And yet at the same time, very private and very quaint in its in its space or eventually what ends up being that space. OK. Anyhow, I mean, there's no couches lying around, but yeah, you can sit on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're doing. All right. So we move on. We've got this recreated living room from Family Ties. Shoto recognizes it, gives a, an approving nod at the decor. And that's when he begins to break into the fact that the Sixers killed his brother the night prior. And not just killed his avatar, but actually pulled him out of his haptic rig and threw him out of a window. What a way to go. Yeah, that's... What tune did he whistle? <laughs> it probably went like this. Ah! Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. It's still too soon, isn't it? Uh, maybe. I don't know. This book came out in 2011. I think it's uh, we're okay. I think it's interesting that Parzival asks, are you sure he didn't kill himself? Yeah, that that was kind of like, why would he? Well, it, it's, it's still, it happens, I guess is the best way to put it. Is You know, he already knew that. But the likelihood of like, you're in the middle of combat mm-hmm. and you're like, you're Ultraman. And you're like, eh. Fuck jump it. out the window. Fuck, Fuck it. it. They're going to win soon, which he doesn't know at that point. What if you had like a rolling blackout, you know, and then your haptic rig turns off and you're like, son of a bitch. And then you just jump out the window. That's pretty harsh. It's kind Drastic. of extreme. I agree. Very I, extreme. I, yeah, I agree. But man, I'm, all right, let's just like, I can see this. I understand that it had to be written so that Parzival would ask the question that the readers are asking themselves. How do we know? Because he doesn't know, no. You know, he knows that on the news it says that he committed suicide. So there's no obvious evidence that's being reported that he was killed. So well, in, in some ways, he doesn't even know that that's really him. He's only, he's using deduction. Well, I thought they knew each other's names. No, they didn't. He says, he even says, like, I didn't, I didn't even know his name until I read it in the article. Interesting. So in some ways, it's like he's sort of going out on a limb, but not really, that that's actually Dido. Yeah, yeah, he's right. He says, I didn't even know that until last night, until I saw the news article. That could have just been the random otaku suicide. Yeah, I I get you. It's a little bit of a leap, but I guess when he doesn't... I'm sorry, what did you just say? About the otaku suicide? You said it was a little bit of a leap? Yeah, shut up. (laughs) That's too soon. Oh, all right, all right. My bad. You're right. That's that's touchy. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump to conclusions. Go on. <laughs> Boy, let's not get into another sticky situation like that other chapter. Uh, uh, <clears throat> all right. All right. So, yeah, I, I just feel like it was a little bit of a, I'm not going to say leap, but a little bit of a stretch to immediately assume that the, the person in that article was Dido when he didn't have any other any other information to verify that that was him other than the fact that he didn't respond and say okay well i'm here now give me, give me my shit back mm -hmm. so it, it's pure deduction yeah it, it's funny because you know there isn't any question that it is who it is the question is whether or not he committed suicide or was murdered but you're right you know i'm, I'm reading this and i'm kind of like i guess i just assumed just reading this or listening to it and going along with it, that there was no question. But you're kind of pointing out a hole here, which is that the real question should be, how do you know that that person who supposedly committed suicide is 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 Daito? And that's the question you're asking. That's what I'm asking. You know, for all we know, his crap got unplugged or, you know, somebody kidnapped him. You know, or, or drugged him, or something, any number of things. Or he had a heart attack in his chair. Or he had a heart attack in his chair. Although, I'm sure if you're having a heart attack, you wouldn't sound like you're about to say someone's inside your apartment. Well, I, I wonder if they'd even seen each other, because they they had gone to, didn't they go to like an AA group for, for Oasis addicts? That's, how, that's like where they met. That's the other thing, is that they, they did that in the Oasis, which feels like, let's have the <laughs> AA meeting at the fucking bar. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to meet a lot of people who you have shit in common with, I guess. I know. It's like that just is so weird to me. It's like why are you having an o Oasis overusers a support group in the Oasis? Right. I yeah, I mean that's 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 odd. <laughs> I know. So that's I think that's like the real question that should have been asked because, you know, that's where the doubt should be. Like how do you know that these are the two same people? But I guess when somebody suspects someone has killed themselves and the timing is incredibly coincidental, like, you know what time it is when when he went missing and you watch the news and the news comes back and says this kid threw himself out a window at exactly this time. And I could imagine and granted, the book doesn't connect those dots in the same way, but it would have made sense if he had asked, well, how do you know that that's the same person? And then for him to say the time that that person jumped out of a window or was thrown out of a window is the exact same time that he that he left the Oasis. That I could see. Yeah, it's a lot of connecting of the dots that we don't really get most of the benefit of the doubt of knowing. And, and to be fair, he very likely did connect those dots on his own and came to a very reasonable conclusion that indeed the kid in the article was his brother, Dido. Right. Like that. that's plausible. Like I said, you know, it was about that time and... It sounded like he was saying someone was in his apartment. He clearly wasn't about to commit suicide. So who would want to come into his apartment and throw him out of a window? Well, you can you can get there. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's still a deduction from certain <clears throat> facts. It's not, but it's not, they're not that tied together quite yet. If you want to think they said like, oh, well, I know his name is Toshiru or whatever his name is. Oh, yeah. He did, we told each other each other's names, but they, they did not. They did not. Yeah. Yeah. And they wouldn't meet in person because that, that sent Daito off into a pissy rage. Yeah. Which I don't know why he'd be so pissed about that unless it's like, 
his character is he kind of has this whole sense of like honor and all that so maybe it has something to do with that that it felt like that was a front to the honor behind their friendship and relationship i don't know I would imagine it would be something along the lines of that meeting in reality would be forging a relationship outside of the Oasis when the absolute right relationship for them both to have was in the Oasis. That having that divergent reality would reinforce the real reality and also reinforce the fake reality as being fake. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if all, all you know is this character in the Oasis and that's all you want to know. That's all you care. It works, and it works well. Then you don't want anything to step on that reality in the slightest. It does seem like it's a bit of an honor thing. Like, no, this is the reality that matters most. How dare you suggest that we we shed our oasis coil, or was it the mortal coil? Is that what the phrase? Yes. I, yeah, so you you shed your oasis coil, and suddenly you're now this this real life person, and they don't care about that. They're the oasis is their everything. Yeah. So yeah, it would be a dishonoring of of the reality that they both respect deeply, which is the oasis. It would be literally yeah. saying, "Let's meet in person." Would be you know, let's 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 disrespect the oasis. Even Parzival says when uh, he's trying to fill that awkward silence, is like, we live here in the oasis. This is the only reality that matters to us. That's not a bad filler for an awkward silence. It's not. It, uh, it's not like just saying, "Hey, how about how about that ball game?" <laughs> it's. Well, did you did but, you get all of his stuff? Yeah. <laughs> did, he dropped did a you, shitload of loot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you happen to have those uh those you know those uh that. That suit? Did you get his extra pair of black morning robes? <laughs> All right. Okay. So they've they've had this conversation. They've kind of settled on this fact that that Daito was killed, not not mistaken as somebody who committed suicide or committed suicide. And in this in this brief moment, that's where they exchange their real names. Uh, I th- this struck me as important. Uh, what did this strike you as? I I saw this as just kind of. I mean, thinking about them as we were just talking about uh, feeling that the Oasis is the only reality that matters, that the kind of one thing that you have that this sort of intangible yet really valuable piece of information about yourself that you could give up is your name, your real identity. And to give that to someone is kind of like that ultimate trust. It's like it's like Batman. It's it's like Bruce Wayne. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Batman telling somebody he's Bruce Wayne. I'm, I'm really Bruce Wayne. I've got a, I've got a secret to share with you. I'm Bruce Wayne. It, it's kind of like them taking the glasses off, and it's like, oh, you're Superman, but you were just Clark Kent. How did you do that? Yeah. Every movie where there's been superheroes, the superhero giving up his his super giving up his real life identity is this allowance to be a part of a greater risk in that superhero's life, which is to say that the risk of harm to you, which is really a strange thing to say, the risk of harm to you by knowing my name is less than, it's a vulnerability. It's truly a trust thing because somebody knowing your real name, if they went out and told the world, that'd be a problem. You're literally giving out, you're giving to somebody uh, something incredibly intimate in a world where your survival relies on a degree of anonymity and everyone having a different name in order to, to create anonymity. Presenting your real life name is a huge sign of trust. It's like getting naked with someone, I guess. Hey, I, thought, I thought we weren't going to talk about pregnancy anymore. 
Uh, I'm sorry. It's yeah. But anyway, so yeah, back to the whole thing about giving up your identity thing. Like that, your little um, discussion there kind of reminded me of, I mean, so many different superhero characters. You know, like in Spider-Man, how he doesn't want to get involved with Mary Jane because if they're together and someone finds out that he's with her, she's at risk. Yep, yep. But but that somehow the relationship allows for it at some point. It's it's always this sort of struggle. Do you put a person into risk or do you end, of course, risk to yourself? And that's kind of where I was going earlier with the risk thing. Or do you trust them and put an enormous amount of trust? Trust that, that they won't expose you and trust that they will stay out of trouble, that they won't try to get involved and thus become a liability. So it's, it's, it's really a, like a two-way trust almost. Uh, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, there was a book that I read back in the 90s called The Wizard of Earthsea. Oh, um, and that's um, it's uh, Ursula uh, Le Guin. Ursula K. Yeah. Le Guin. Yeah, right on. That's, yeah, that's absolutely. on my uh, to read list. That's highly recommended to me. And she just died. Yes, she did. It was published in 1968. And one of the things I liked about the book, one of the one of the points that I enjoyed was this concept that when you know the name of a thing, that's when you're able to control the thing. So, you know, not everything is named accurately for that reason, that that the world kind of has pseudo names for a number of things, but that discovering the name of a thing lends you some degree of control over the thing. And that exchange of names kind of reminded me of that point in the book, that that by exchanging names, they're kind of giving each other sort of mutual control over each other's lives. Like each each of them could fuck each other over, but they won't. It, like an ultimate gift almost, an ultimate sign of trust and bonding. Anyhow, I, I thought that was kind of neat. Like it, it really occupies one or two sentences within the entire book. But the idea here that you're, you're sacrificing your anonymity uh, for the sake of honoring somebody else, maybe is the best way to put it for me, was just kind of poignant. I thought that was kind of cool. And there are a lot of references. You've already mentioned superhero references or book references where the importance of a name comes to play. The only thing that I've heard is that I've read The Lathe of Heaven. That's a, that's a mind fuck. I've not heard of that book. The premise is that this guy, he has these like vivid dreams that come true. Mm -hmm. So he goes to like this uh, therapist guy or a psychologist guy, tries to say, like, help me deal with this. And the the guy ends up, you know, he tests out the theory and it's like, indeed, that's true. So he starts like fucking with shit to try to make things better for himself and all that. But things don't always change like the way he intends them to change. So he like kind of hypnotizes him into dreaming a certain thing to make a change. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always come out the way he thought it was going to come out. Really, really kind of cool. Interesting. You should check it out. So the, the gift that is bestowed to, to Parzival is the capsule that allows the person to, to turn into Ultraman. And in this chapter, we really get a sample of the power of Ultraman in the three minutes that you've got to trigger the capsule and, and just kick ungodly ass. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just burning whole armies of troops of IOI, just making them sizzle like ants under a magnifying glass. I loved that illusion 
Oh, just just burning out. I mean, just exploding choppers in the air as or uh, they weren't choppers, but they were like attack ships, right? Well, yeah, like the uh, the fighters or whatever. The, these, the ships. these these drop ships that were coming at them. I, I just uh, I, I thought this is cool. Like this this really shows the reason why this object is incredibly rare and limited in the amount of time that you can use it to kind of balance the power. But you know, d- during this IOI ass kicking session it really brings out you know the power of this device and the fact that shoto originally wanted to give it to parzival because you know they introduced the quest and shoto was like you know i'm not over my dead body he didn't say exactly that but he kind of threw a pissy fit again dido said that i think you just said shoto well shoto didn't want him to have it no Dido didn't want him to have it damn it son of a bitch see i'm so backwards on this now Uh, you're on opposite day you know what the problem is? I'm just going to have to read the fucking book again. <laughs> again, again. Okay, fine. So then in this situation, he wants him to have it. Like, like he wanted you to have this, and I don't want it. Like, it's too painful for him to have it around, because it'll just remind him of that battle and him being killed in the real world. Well, it's like wearing your, your best friend's, your, your dead best friend's suit. You know, Why would little... you do that? Because it's like the last thing, the last thing he wore was the beta capsule. I mean, it's it's virtual, it's virtual, but still creepy, right? Yeah, no, I I see why he wouldn't want it, but like on the other hand, if you've ever watched Ultraman, you'd be like, yeah, I kind of want that. I dust that shit off. I'd be like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can get, a, I think I can get past that. He had like, this yeah. lightsaber that he said, "Boy, I really wish Parzival could have this," but the <laughs> uh, the beta capsule, I'm gonna keep. <laughs> He just takes the lightsaber and just tosses it into the pile with the 50 other Zeons. Yeah, what do you need 50 fucking lightsabers for? If did, he there he dime- had, did he say he yeah. had 50 lightsabers he, in he all of them? He says he's got like 50 in his uh, in his vault or something like that. Like, what do you need 50 lightsabers for? It's like a fucking lightsaber is like a Funko Pop doll. You get like 200 of them and it's like, oh, I've got like 20 more where that came from, but it's still cool. I'm going to get it. It almost sounds like it's useless. It does. And I don't think we, up to this point, have ever heard him say he was using them when he goes out, uh, you know, like when he went to both arcade and to the Zork simulation, he never says anything about taking a lightsaber. Well, he had 50 of them, but he left them behind. Yeah. But, so like, what's the fucking point? That shit's useless. Evidently. I, you it gotta, is, you it is those lightsabers that just have the, like the plastic kind of funnel thing that extends out when you like slam it out. I, I don't know. Maybe lightsabers are just so passe. Maybe everybody's got one. Maybe that's the problem. It's so popular, everyone's got one. Even IROC has. Yeah. You got to take a look at this. Really cool. This this is awesome, man. You got to see this. I hit the button. A light comes out at the top. I call it my laser sword. Dude, it's a yeah. lightsaber. Whatever. I see your <laughs> Schwartz is as big as mine. I've heard that they want to make a second one. Yeah, they've been. Yeah. They've, they've, no, they've, they've been tossing a title around. Anyway, anyway, until that becomes a real thing. Uh, yeah, you'd think like a lightsaber would be like a utility tool. Like, okay, so you got 50 of them. Why wouldn't you keep one on you? Because think about it. It does one of two things. It it can light the way. So it's instantly a torch in a dark place, right? Mm-hmm. And aside from being a really bright light, if something jumps out, you swing the light at it and it kills them or something. Well, plus, I think it's just like an homage to a fantastic franchise for the most part. Yeah, it'd be cool if they'd integrated it in, I suppose. Uh, and rather than making it sound common and passe, but eh, whatever. Instead, instead of the 50 lightsabers, he decides to go and pull 
the samurai sword that he has off of his wall. And I'd love to see this wall of swords and shit that he has. His gargantuan collection. But he ends up pulling, what is the, uh, it's the, the Amasumune? Masamune? Yeah, I know. I, I pronounced that to hell. I'm only pronouncing it the way Will Wheaton pronounces it. Ah, okay. The only thing that I found about it is that there was, I guess, a, an actual guy named Masamune who is considered to be Japan's greatest swordsmith. But apparently, Masamune is also a weapon that appeared in the Final Fantasy series. Oh, wow. Double reference. Okay. But I've never played Final Fantasy, so I have no idea. I've played a little bit of Final Fantasy, but it was not my gig. I did not dig it as much as many, many people did. They made like a bazillion of those games. It, it, you know, I think that and, and Fast and Furious are in a, in a run for the most number of iterations in a damn franchise that you can possibly come up with. But all right, so it, it had that, and on top of that has like a plus five Vorpal. Ooh, Vorpal. Now, now my understanding is that, and I had to look this up, I, I think that's even been mentioned a number of chapters back, but we're talking about a reference to a Vorpal sword in Alice in Wonderland, or Through the Looking Glass, to be more specific. But that the word Vorpal itself was a made-up fucking word. It doesn't mean anything. Was it from Alice in Wonderland, or I thought it was just like a uh, Lewis Carroll poem? Um, well, I could have sworn it was from the story. Maybe. What I found was that it's from a Lewis Carroll poem, uh, Jabberwocky, which is from Alice in Wonderland. Okay, right. And then I guess it was, it was adopted by Dungeons and Dragons for Vorpal Blades. Gotcha. Uh, this is where my reference gets a little fuzzy. Uh, I understand that where it came from, I, but that the word Vorpal itself was admittedly a made-up fucking word. Oh, that I'm for sure. It's just, I wouldn't doubt that. But, I mean, he admitted it. They were like, what does Vorpal mean? He like, I don't know. It's whatever you want it to mean. It just sounded cool. It does kind of sound And therefore, cool. Vorpal. It does. Like, if I, if I held something to you, and I and I said I carefully handed it over while looking at it cautiously, and I said, "It's a vorpal blade, not just any blade, mind you, a vorpal blade." <laughs> You'd grab that and go, "What the fuck does that mean?" I don't know. See, the thing is, like before I looked this up to find out what it, what it really meant, because I've heard this mm -hmm. thousands of times, even outside of the thousands of times I've read the book. And never knew what it was, but it sounded like that was something you wanted. Like it was a really good thing to have if you, on a sword. A Vorpal blade sounds like the kind of blade you want, right? That like that's right. the yeah. That, that that's what that's what it, uh, that's what came out of it for me. Well, it reminded me of like when we were on Zork. Uh, you got a bag of gold, you got a blue sneaker, and then you got a Vorpal blade. I mean, they didn't get the Vorpal blade from it, but then you had like this very long description like the longer the description for the weapon or the item the rarer it was you know or the more unique the description was somehow the rarer it was anyhow so it's got plus five vorpal and and they treat that shit like it is some some sacred artifact of awesomeness and and they both treat it that way like my guess is that and I, what was it that you'd asked about the sword why 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 is this sword that big of a deal yeah, well, he 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 sounds so awestruck, and he looks at it like with such reverence. And I mean, it's not a it's not an artifact. He's not offering him. Uh, he probably should have offered it an artifact because he was given one. But mm -hmm. he, it, it's just I don't know. Is it is it that much more rare than having fifty fucking lightsabers? Go get one. But well, he didn't have 50 of that sword. I know, but go buy your own Masamune if you're so awestruck by the goddamn thing. Well, maybe it's an, maybe it's an artifact. 
Maybe there's only one. I doubt it. Why would Parzival have it? He probably got it because it looked cool for the wall. <laughs> like I got this at an antique store. Uh, I thought you might well, like it. Think about it. He, he kept oh, it. I hope this cheers you up. On Hold what on. I'm going to grab some apples and some pineapple <laughs> slices. I'm going to put on the sword. And uh, and you can roast it over a grill. So, which wall in the family ties living room are you hanging up your Masamune? Ah, uh, the one next to the family portrait. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's it's the Keaton it's the Keaton family portrait. Yeah, right under the Keaton family Masamune. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you get the feeling that at the very least, this present is 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 both potentially rare, rarer than a fucking lightsaber, evidently, and that both of them respect that fact, which is which is kind of which is nice. And after having given the sword, there's this, I guess, look of despair on Shoto's face, and it's funny because Parsival dares to ask him, "Have you given up?" And the response there is, "Oh no, no." Now he has a new mission in mind. And it's fucking revenge. Fuck you. And, you know, it's not over until the fat lady sings. Well, that's not exactly how they put it, but that's that's the gist of it here. And I love the fact that that Parzival has had given up in Chapter 24. And that's the reason why I thought we should kind of staple these two things together. Because it really goes from Parzival having given up in 24 to, in 25, him asking, have you given up? Like, all of a sudden, he's changed his mind, but he wants to see if Shoto's given up. Like, Shoto's evidently even in a worse place. He lost his, like, hetero life mate, and that's potentially a lower place than Parzival's even reached. Because no one's died, per se, in Parzival's life. They've, he's just basically driven them away. But here, Shoto's closest friend and ally has died. So that's potentially the lowest point. So for Parzival to say, have you given up, is kind of like trying to encourage him not to even though an hour later he he was basically on the ledge he kind of doesn't like he wouldn't want him to be giving up deep in that question is this desire for him to be still hunting so is it is it this maybe this idea that if you're not willing to give up then neither am i like maybe he's looking for hope in his not giving up yeah i kind of like well if he's not going to give up i'm not giving up i could see that i could see that and and the fact that there is this bend that even if even if IOI wins, his new egg, his new hunt is revenge. I love that idea. It almost makes me want to see them get revenge, basically lose the the contest, and then see what revenge happens. Maybe that'll be Ready Player 2. But I'd love to see something like that. It, it reminded me of that text conversation between Artemis and Parzival, where they talk about getting revenge. Revenge is a dish best served cold, Bon appetit. Yes. Klingon. One of the many places that, that phrase comes from. And then there's the, uh, it's not over until it's over. Yep. Yogi Berra. Was that Yogi Berra? Yogi Berra. Oh. I think it's not over till it's over, I think. Was that Yogi Berra? I thought there was a song that like said that. But I think Yogi Berra said, the game ain't over. Oh, there's a Lenny Kravitz song called It over. Ain't Over Till It's Over. And when was that put out? 98? 91. No, 91. All right. It ain't over till it's over. Okay, so maybe we're yeah. having a little bit of a reference like that. But, but either it way, a, it's yeah. it's kind of... Go ahead. It is also a Yogi, Yogi Berra quote, or, it, or Yogiism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's neat that it come the end of this chapter that we've come out of this, that, that now there's sort of that, that hope, you know, and that, that rounds out the situation with uh, Luke Skywalker hanging on for dear life. And in that moment, sort of reaching out with the force and 
bringing Leia and the Millennium Falcon to him to rescue him. And then the movie rounds out with him sort of looking out and he's got a new hand, a robotic hand, and shit's bad, but he's surrounded by the people that he loves. He's reunited with his sister, albeit I don't think he knows at the moment it's his sister, uh, and a few others. And, and it's just kind of that regrouping that you find strength in your closest friends before you go into battle to sort of come together. You feel bigger than yourself. And, and I kind of got that coming out of this chapter. Yeah. Anything, anything else you can think of? Yeah. It's kind of like trying to think of a way to phrase this. Whereas the last chapter just ended fucking giving it up. You do have this sense of hope at the end of this chapter. The hunt's not stopping here for either of them. And so it does kind of end on a more positive, more uplifting note, despite the fact that it was very heavy a chapter, seeing as uh, it's not kind of these unwholesome characters or nameless characters that kind of just get blown up in the stacks. But this is somebody that we've kind of gotten to know a little bit more and was in the high five and had a whole lot to lose. And now he's gone. Yeah, this was I remember when back when the show was talking about the the big boom and how that was like a huge event in the book because shit got fucking real. Well, shit got really fucking real again. Right. In this chapter. And while he hasn't lost all of his stuff, he's been kicked out of the rankings. He's been he's been dropped down. Uh, He's been basically he's been kicked down in a number. They both have been kicked down like the entire crew has been kicked down. And now they've got to come together and figure out what to do next. And they're they got to get that second wind going. And that's that's kind of you feel like you're on the precipice of a second win. And so, I, you know, when I reached this place in the book, I was like, it's like every other fucking chapter. I'm ready to move on to the next chapter. Yeah. Uh, excited, excited to get into the next chapter. But at least I felt like I went from a very depressing ending, a hopeless ending in chapter 24 to a very hopeful and strong ending in chapter 25. And as well as this demonstration, this description of the devastation that the beta capsule can use. Now there's almost a, a deeper mission a deeper level of of honor, which is seated on the firm chair of revenge that they can kind of wrap their heads around. So I'm going to wrap up this chapter, unless there's anything else you can think of. A few quick things. First, this was, I think, the point in the book where I was reading late into the night until I fucking finished. Like this was Mm. like that last kind of hook where it was just like, oh, I like I can't stop at this point. I got to know what goes on next. I'm right. pretty sure this was about that point. This was the push through point. Yeah, this was the okay, gotta finish, gotta finish. This this was like snorting that line of crack and wanting more kind of thing. <laughs> okay. All right. And then and then some other things that you can cut out if you want. Back when they were talking about how they were in that support group and they referred to this, you know, these Japanese kids who were on the in the oasis all the time as the missing the missing millions. And how we heard that phrase in the movie, but it was mm-hmm. kind of like everybody in the Oasis was kind of referred to as the missing millions. So I thought that was kind of interesting how the movie had kind of repurposed that phrase. They repurposed a lot of things. They did, yeah. In the movie. And then the I think the last thing, or I'll make it the last thing, is um, way, way back in the podcast, I think it was Ryan, maybe it was you, I don't remember, but somebody was saying how Dido and Shoto are the best gunters because they had to overcome the language barrier. 
Yeah, this chapter kind of proved that bullshit. That proved that. Yeah, this chapter proved that bullshit because right. at least Shoto grew up learning both Japanese and English fluently at the same time. Right. Right. They that kind of. Yeah, that kind of blew it out. Uh, it, it did answer that question though, because I remember, I remember, I remember way back in earlier episodes where that had come up, and I think Ryan was was fighting for the fact that they they were they were better because because of that learning barrier, like everything was in English that that was important to the to the quest. Nearly everything was in English that was important to the quest, despite the fact that the most popular language is uh, Mandarin. You know, it's spoken by the most number of people. And that here's a person who's foreign, you know, and and they have to learn two languages in order to get by. And and not knowing English as your first language would be would make the deciphering of a lot of this shit difficult. Because, I mean, could you imagine a fucking riddle in another language? Oh, you don't pick up on the nuance and just like the kind of the the idioms of the language and it just it would be so difficult there are some words that just don't translate and there are other words that don't translate well at all you know that they can but kind of not very well and when you've got you know metaphors or or you're hinting at something with some other word you might completely miss it if it's not your if it's not a primary language so that was the argument that that was made i don't remember if it was ryan or who made the argument a number of episodes back but here in this chapter, we learn that, what was it, Shoto was yeah. basically raised up on English and, and knew it as a first language, nearly, you know, or as a primary language. So interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's neat that, that kind of, it, or I don't know if it's neat. <laughs> I think it, it's interesting that it harkens back to a previous conversation. And I feel like maybe a, a bet should have been made, like maybe a dollar is owed to somebody <laughs> somewhere. Maybe. Maybe. Anything else you can think of? Uh... Uh, I would say that uh, Dido and Shoto putting the trackers on the Sixer ships was actually a really brilliant idea. I like that. Yeah. At that point, you know, everybody else is doing whatever they can if they can't figure out the riddle. They know that they're going to use Vendora's Tabata findings. So, yeah. It's very, well, it's very sneaky. If you can't it figure is. it out yourself, basically track the person who can. Yeah. I thought that, I mean, not exactly in the spirit of the contest, but it's in the spirit of the game. It, it, it definitely is in the spirit of the contest, because think about, think about a number of movies where the primary character, I'll give you an example, Indiana Jones and the, and the uh, Lost Ark. The, the Ark gets ripped away from him because he's followed by the Nazis. He's down there. He's found the Ark. And then the Nazis come over and go, oh, yeah, we've been following you. So let's just go ahead and why don't you just haul the Ark up here? And we'll leave you assholes down there with the snakes. I mean, that's that's a common thing. Like the person who's the smartest leads the bad guy to the prize. It, it, to me, it seems common. To me, it seems common. Yeah, I know, I know it's common, but it just feels like I don't know. If you're trying to find the good in everybody, suddenly like that whole thing is kind of like, well, that's not really like the the good. That that's kind of the sneaky. That's the... that's fucking clever. Hey, if you can't be knowledgeable, be sneaky. That's true. They're, you know, it's like it's like different levels of intelligence, and uh, to go in and uh, it, when you know that the entire armada of IOI is going to show up wherever the next thing is, yeah, it wouldn't take many trackers, many tracking devices, uh, to to figure out where to go next, and that's pretty fucking brilliant. Yeah. All right, then we're wrapping it up. That's the end of chapter twenty-five. It leaves off with a very hopeful note. And overall, I'm just I'm glad that we wrap these two chapters together because, quite frankly, chapter twenty-four is both short and incredibly depressing. And uh, stick, stay tuned for 
after the the ending bit uh, because uh, we tried doing that chapter with Ryan. He had to cut out in the middle of it. It just it just didn't work out. But I didn't want to cut out everything completely. So we wanted to have a little bit of what Ryan thought as far as this chapter is concerned. So stay tuned afterwards. But that said, we're rounding out this chapter. My name's Chris. And I'm Aaron. This has been Get to the Good Part, and I'll see you next chapter. We'll see you next chapter. We'll see you next chapter. <laughs> Before you go, I know that we said we would have something at the end of this chapter from Ryan in regards to his thoughts on this, but rather than cram it into a small space at the end of this episode, we thought we would create a, a 10 or 15 minute episode with his thoughts on chapter 24. It's the last episode that he did with us and he had to cut out early. So we wanted to put something together special for him. So just stay tuned. We'll have something in the coming weeks for you. Thanks. And we'll catch you then.